This episode is brought to you by the AIA Film Challenge. Let architecture inspire your next short for a chance to win $5,000 in a screening at the Architecture and Design Film Festival in New York. The fourth annual AIA Film Challenge invites filmmakers to team with architects and share stories of architects and civic leaders designing a better future for our communities. Register today at AIAFilmChallenge.org. That's AIAFilmChallenge.org. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hayne. It's July 19th, 2018. And on this week's show, How to Launch Your Own Netflix, The MacBook Pro Sort of Wins Us Back, Should You Buy a Video Camera or a Still Camera That Shoots Video, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and weekly words of wisdom. <laughs> everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So you might have missed me last week. I know I missed you and you all in this booth and beyond. Uh, I want to thank you three fellas for holding down the fort and doing such an entertaining show. I I really enjoyed last week's episode. Your ratings were through the roof last week. I heard it was our most successful episode ever. Okay, I wouldn't go as far as all that, but... Uh, no, people were raving about it. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten so many tweets before. People Everybody. were like, I was walking down the street and people were like, best episode ever out of yeah. the side of cars. Yeah. Like, wow, how do you know what we look like? They yeah. were like, I'm not sure what was different about that show, but whatever changes you guys made, really... Keep them. Yeah. All right, I take it all back. <laughs> I take all the nice words back. Um, except for this one that Eric was so humble that he didn't even mention while he was busy wishing me happy birthday. He didn't even mention that his own birthday was yeah. this past Saturday, the yeah. 14th. I don't know if I should have wished myself one, though. You know? Your birthday's Bastille Day? Bastille Day, yeah. Oh. What a great weekend for France, too. They have Bastille Day, and then they win the World Cup the next day. Bon anniversary. I turned, I turned 31. Uh, if Igmar Bergman was still alive, he would have turned 100 on Saturday. Um, wow. But but yes, yeah. Did I black out or not? I can't tell you. But it was a good because weekend. you can't remember. I can't recall. But it was a good weekend. Thank All you. All I'll say is that Eric didn't come in on Monday for birthday related. Because I was too old. I can't fevers. move anymore. It's getting to the knees. Fun. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thanks, everybody. And thank you all out there who sent those nice birthday wishes. Um, you're much kinder than the people I spend most of my day with. Uh, anyhow, so. <laughs> 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 it's not true. Um, one thing you guys talked about last week on the show, getting into headlines, was that Netflix is slated to spend 12 to $13 billion on content by the end of the year. Now, since that episode, there are some new Netflix-related numbers out that make us wonder whether the company should maybe, like, reel it in a little. For the first time in two years, Netflix has fallen short of quarterly growth expectations both domestically and abroad. According to Variety, the company's disappointing earnings report from the second quarter of 2018 resulted in its stock falling 14% during after-hours trading. This isn't exactly pointing to the downfall of the company, After all, TubeFilter reminded us that just last week, Netflix earned more Emmy nominations than any other broadcaster, toppling HBO's 17-year dominance as the most nominated network. I was surprised to hear that. 17 years. So that was basically like Sopranos, straight into Six Feet Under, straight into... Game of Thrones, I guess, right? No, there was more between. There must have been a transitioner there to keep it going for that long. The Wire. Oh, The Wire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... The age of peak TV. HBO brought it on. Netflix didn't, um, but but Netflix is right up there now. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
All that being said, if you're thinking about what an alternative to Netflix could be for your film, we put up a guest post this week that floated a pretty novel concept. Start your own streaming service. Yep, you heard me right. All the tools are available right now for you to launch a customized VOD channel online. Amir Shazadi, who works for Uscreen, one of the services that enables filmmakers to do this, brought up some points in his post that really raised my eyebrows. One statement he made was so simple yet so profound. He said, Netflix broke down a door that can never be closed again, but it didn't put up another one of its own. Meaning that Netflix changed the industry forever, but didn't prevent others from following its lead. So Amir argues that instead of getting Netflix to distribute your movie, you could set up your own over-the-top service and set your own prices and policies for the use of your films. Now, of course, you'd still have to get people to know about and come to your channel, but imagine the implications for something like a film collective that's putting out a bunch of films and has this means in place to promote and distribute them. It would potentially free members up to just work on films without worrying so much about a path to distribution. This isn't going to be the right solution for everyone, but I thought it was definitely good food for thought, and we will link to that post in our uh, podcast post this week. And in news that probably won't shock anyone at all, uh, a recent study that came out from the San Diego State University Center for the Study of Women in TV and Film, it was revealed that male film critics outnumber female film critics two to one. As film criticism as a straight-up profession has unfortunately been dwindling in recent years, it's still alarming to see the boys club profession, if you will, continue to hold dominance over the field. So why does it matter? Well, in addition to not just caring about equal representation, have you ever stopped and thought about who reviews what and how they may take to a certain film based on who they are and how that might affect their review of it and how that might change the type of films that are being produced moving forward as a result? As the rap reports, uh, the study found that with films directed by women, female critics were more likely than men to mention the name of the director and to use exclusively positive comments when talking about her skills, work, and vision. Women reviewers, on average, also awarded higher ratings than men to films with female protagonists. In contrast, male writers are more likely than females to use exclusively complimentary words and phrases when talking about male directors. Uh, I'd also like to note that in the study, they found that 83% of the female critics were white, while 14% were minorities, and 3% had unknown racial or ethnic identity. The disparity among male critics is similar, with 82% of all male critics being white, 9% minorities, and the other 9% having unknown racial or ethnic identity. Now, let me first say that not one person's opinion necessarily matters more than another's, and that's not what this is about. It's about having each voice represented, and, and not just one voice. Each voice should have the same level of credence. In a recent article released by the LA Times titled, There's Room for Everyone, 14 Film Critics on Making Media More Inclusive, Asian-American film critic Justin Chang, who was uh, formerly of Variety, now he's of the LA Times, had noted, says, Chang does push back on what Brie Larson vocalized in her now infamous speech about not wanting to hear a 40-year-old white guy's opinion on a film like Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time. Chang says, actually, you do need to hear what they have to say. It's just that they're not the only ones you need to hear from. I know there are a lot of people who sometimes would love if white men would just shut up and we'd never have to hear from them again. And I understand the impulse behind that, but I'd caution against that. Because while the history of film criticism is a history of largely white male scholarship, it is not just a bunch of oppressive opinions holding you down. There is a lot of insight, a lot of education, a lot of wonderful writing in that. And I think that if you are so ready to just throw that out the window and say their opinions don't matter, I really think you don't value criticism to begin with. Now, of course, everyone should be allowed to review the films they'd wish to review. 
Women need not be assigned films directed by women because of the publication or publicists wrongly assume that due to the sex of the critic, the more positive a review will come out. Sometimes you'll see publicists targeting female critics with the, what they would call a female-centered film. And so it'll be interesting to see how many top critics on Rotten Tomatoes are reviewing the Mamma Mia sequel, for example, rather than men. And editors can be smarter with this when assigning coverage based on the sex of the reviewer, but first they need a wider pool to assign from. Um, so it's definitely a whole through a whole lot at, at you there as well. Um, but it is just about getting more voices and then also not putting them in the box and labeling that you can only cover this kind of film and, and things of that nature that I think is a little bit more, uh, you know, progressive as we move along, not just new voices, but allowing them to kind of take on things that we don't put them in the box for. Thanks, Eric. I know this is like a tricky subject that, you know, will drive some people crazy, but I do think your point about, you know, all the reasons films get produced um, is, is, uh, is very salient to our listeners you know, maybe it's something people don't think about that actually because of film criticism and the pool of film critics that are out there, you know, they may end up being inadvertent gatekeepers to what films get funded and what don't ultimately. And that's something that should matter to all of us who want to work in this industry. Totally. Yeah. So it is in that that word of mouth can help the smaller films as well. Of course, critics are not going to stop the Transformers 7 or 8 from coming out. You know, their voice is not as powerful Thank on, goodness. on that global scale. Yeah, exactly. But on those smaller films that need that coverage and need that help, uh, it is important to have a diverse field of voices. Cool. So uh, we're sharing a different kind of obituary this week as we say goodbye to a piece of the heart of every movie lover of a certain age. I'm talking to you, Charles Hayne. <laughs> in my town growing up, there was only one independent movie theater, and it showed only one movie at a time. So when VCRs came around and Blockbuster Video opened, it was like mana from heaven. How many hours did I spend poring over those little rectangular boxes, learning names like Kubrick and Campion, and trying to decide which treasure to take home next? Believe it or not, only a little over a decade ago, there were still more than 9,000 Blockbuster stores in America. Then in 2011, the company went bankrupt and was bought at auction. Netflix had begun to expand internationally the year before and started making original content the year after. Still, a few hundred blockbuster stores hung on. Most of these were then closed by 2013, but a handful that were independently owned stayed open. As of this year, there were three left. Two of them flourished in Alaska, where poor internet reception for streaming kept the brick and mortars in business, but earlier this week, these stores, too, announced their pending closures. Now there will be only one blockbuster left in the world in lovely Bend, Oregon. So VHS-ophiles, start planning your pilgrimages and bring snowshoes. Do you think Russell Crowe feels bad that, like, his leather thong wasn't able to save it? Oh, yeah, you're talking about how some of the <laughs> some film props were donated to those stores in Alaska to help them stay open. Yeah, that it would be like a pilgrimage where people wanted to see Russell Crowe's leather thong. They could like also go to the blockbuster. It would be an additional attraction. And even that didn't help. Like if I were Russell Crowe, it would hurt my feelings. That's true. Well, where's that thong going now? It must, if it's not, that's the thing about being the only store left in a major franchise. Like 
I assume there's no district manager or there are no like higher ups that you need to report to anymore, right? Because so there's, there's no jobs. There already weren't in this case because okay. these were like independent. They oh, were, like, so okay. franchises so franchise instead of, yeah. Gotcha. So there's no thong wrangler left. Yeah, where does it go? You determine... can call the inventory department to like I'm picturing like a moose like hooking it with one of its horns and just going <laughs> off into the sunset. Next up, Bend, Oregon, people. They're like, well. I'm really hoping it ends up at the Bend, Oregon store. I feel like all the best blockbuster props should end up there. I bet some people are going to plan vacations now around this. You I know? think so. I could see people like doing I that. Said, pe- do your pilgrimages. It's also a nice ski town. Plus, my niece Chloe lives there. She's awesome. Well, tell her to take out something and never return it. No, <laughs> bring it back. Bring it back. They need it. I hope she gets Russell Crowe's thong. That's a weird thing to wish for your niece. <laughs> I really love her. Moving on, here's some gear news from Mr. Charles Hayne. Hey, this is Charles Hayne. I'm here with Tech News today on a beautiful spring-feeling day in Brooklyn, New York. So, as everybody who obsessively reads everything I write must remember, I really hated the 2016 MacBook Pro. For those of you who don't obsessively read everything I've ever written, I despised it. The keyboard was so loud it woke up my wife when she was sweeping next to me if I started like writing before she woke up. Uh, the touch bar is completely pointless as far as I can tell. And it got rid of like hardware buttons. Like if you do a lot of Photoshop, there's no more like dedicated F5 for content aware fill. The volume buttons were gone. And like I love like for instance, I'm like writing in the morning and like a an uh, autoplay video pops up and it's really loud. I want to like mash that mute button immediately. That was now three steps where I'd like wake up the touch bar and then like adjust the volume thing and then turn it down. And I was like, this is dumb. I hate it. I know other people love it. I hated it. Oh, and I hated not having an SD card reader. And it wasn't even as fast as my 2013 MacBook Pro at some things because the 2013 MacBook Pro had an NVIDIA chip uh, as a graphics card and the 2016 was AMD. There were some things that was faster. Most things were the same speed. And one thing we tested was slower on the new machine. So, I was grumpy about it. But, Apple has now released a huge upgrade, because the 2017 wasn't very much. The 2018 MacBook Pro is out. They announced it on Thursday. People already have it in their hands. Um, I got to play with one on Monday. And it's huge improvements. It's like real spec bump. All the tests are that it's like really a whole bunch faster. There's a six-core processor. There's up to 32 gigabytes of RAM. You can do four gigabytes of video RAM. Um, People are really enjoying it. I got to play with it. Apple rents one of the locations from John Wick for their press events in New York. Uh, If you Google its address, it comes up as like one of the most expensive rentals in New York. Like Curb does an article about how pricey it is. It is a really nice place to do a press meeting. And like I went in and they were like, you can just like type on it for a while. And they showed me the stuff. And it is legitimately way quieter. And they were, like, very conscious. They know that everyone hated the keyboard. And they were like, you see, type on it. And it's quieter and it feels nice and all the reports are faster. Hopefully we'll get to play with one and do a full review. But it's really nice that they seem to actually listen to people, me in specific, and respond to all of my gripes. Um, It still has the touch bar. I know everybody else has gotten over it and likes the touch bar. I might have to get over it and like the touch bar. We will see. We will see when I review it. Do you have a 2016 MacBook Pro? Like, do you own one? I owned it for 30 days and I returned it. Yeah. You own one and like it, right? No, I don't like it. I mean, I <laughs> it's fine, but it doesn't work. <laughs> so I own a 2013 MacBook Pro with the NVIDIA chip. I've colored 4K features on it. I use it every day. I, I'm actually tempted because the old one is about... Uh, 
they still have old ones on the website, like a 2015 you can buy with Apple Care, and I'm wondering if I should buy that with Apple Care. Well, yeah, I mean, my keyboard doesn't work. The, the Siri button doesn't work. The button that's like supposed to start it up, I'd say two out of the four ports on the side don't work. Yeah, but like, how much tea have you spilled on it? None. Oh. And I've spilled a full Starbucks latte <laughs> on my 2013 MacBook Pro. I had to replace the logic board, but it all still works. Dang. So, like, the 2013 to 2015 was, like, peak MacBook Pro. You've got all the ports, full-size USB, full-size Thunderbolt 2. But two years in, this speed bump is actually huge. And accessories are starting to show up that take advantage of Thunderbolt 3 that might make it worth it. The first of which that makes me actually excited is my next topic. I'm so glad to hear you complain about the 2016, John. It's very satisfying for me. I love complaining. Um, that is true. But so there's a there's an accessory now that is Thunderbolt 3 only that will not work with Thunderbolt 2, although I'm going to try and see if I can make it work with Thunderbolt 2 when I get to test it. Dongles. Uh, Blackmagic and Apple have collaborated on an external GPU box. Now, if you don't know what that is, a bit of history. Color grading applications like Blackmagic Revol- Resolve are GPU optimized. And like Media Composer, Premiere, even Final Cut a little bit, they use the GPU, the graphics card, to speed up your processing. This is why filmmakers are always so fixated on that GPU spec when they computer shop, and which is why every filmmaker you see usually has a 15-inch MacBook Pro, because the 15-inch MacBook Pro Retina has a stronger GPU. Which is why I love my 2013, because it has that really great NVIDIA GPU. So, they make these external boxes called eGPU boxes to bring more graphics power to your computer. But Apple hasn't always been the best at supporting it, and it's always been unclear like which one you should get that's going to work best with OS X. And now, not only is OS X proudly supporting GPU boxes, but this one is specifically co-developed by Apple and Blackmagic, which means that you can be pretty confident that it's going to continue to be supported by OS X and continue to work really well with Resolve, which is a huge load off our back. Before, there was no clear answer. It was like, do you get a Bison box? Do you get like a Growler box, which isn't a thing. It's a thing I just made up. But do you get like a, there's one that has like a Wolf logo. There were, there were a lot of options and there was no clear winner. And now it's like, oh, if you're doing Resolve or pretty much any video thing th- on a Mac, this is probably the one you want to get. Um, and that's super exciting. From all the specs, it looks dynamite. It also means you could maybe get away with the 13-inch MacBook Pro because it fully works with the 13-inch MacBook Pro. So you could have like a 13-inch that you could take around with you, and then when you need the video horsepower, you plug it into this. Because it's Thunderbolt 3, it'll work as a charger. So you could use this as the only thing you plug into. So you get home, you plug into this, and you've got screaming video power. The 13-inch doesn't have a touch bar. You can get it with the function keys. And... Um, my only quibble is there's no SDI out. There's an HDMI out. There's four USB ports that are normal USB ports. There's a lot of great stuff here. And I'm just going to keep reminding them that they make great SDI out boxes. And someday they should make one that's built in. Um, we should have a hands on with that sometime soon as well. Is that out now? It is out now. I saw it on Monday. It is already shipping. And we should be. We should have a like field test of one really soon. Do you know the price point? It is like $699. Wow. It's really great. The, the The thing people are complaining about is that it comes with the graphics card built in. And people are like, oh, but I want to be able to like Mod upgrade. It. Yeah, but it's like, honestly, because they built the graphics card in, they built all the cooling in, and it's like one very dynamic unit. And for $699, in two years, if you want to buy the newer one with the newer graphics card, you'll probably still be able to sell the old one for 300 bucks. So 
Like that's what I used to do with MacBook Pros. For years, I bought a brand new one every year and I sold my one year old one for like 80% the price. This will lose value faster. It's a graphics card. A two year old one is not going to hold its value. But if this becomes something where every two years you spend $700 and you sell the old one for $300, you're still going to get a lot of bang for your buck out of it. And it's Thunderbolt 3. So if you're doing anything where you're rendering a lot, you're working in video a lot, I really think the eGPU is going to be something that is worth a look. So this will be like more than just beneficial for colorists. It's sort of a thing that will speed up any editor's process. So I just read a big report that Final Cut 10 might not take a lot of advantage of it. Because Final Cut 10 is still really CPU focused, but I'm going to test that myself because I got Final Cut 10 now. Premiere is really going to use it a lot. Premiere really uses your GPU and Media Composer. You can tell when when you're like Media Composer plain doesn't really use the GPU, but a lot of the plugins do. And there's a little symbol in Media Composer that'll tell you if a plugin's GPU optimized. So if you're in Media Composer, there will be a lot of times you can use it. If you're a Premiere user, Premiere is very aggressive with the GPU. And I know we got a lot of Premiere users in the house. So if you're using Resolver Premiere, this is like 100% time to start looking at a neat GPU to speed up your workflow. Uh, if you are Media Composer or Final Cut, I'm going to do some testing and I will tell you what we think in our field test. Um, but again, this is Thunderbolt 3 only. Even with the adapter cable, they are saying it will not work over Thunderbolt 2. There's not enough speed. I'm, I have the cable. I'm going to try it. I want it to work on the old laptops, but I'm thinking this might be the thing that finally makes Thunderbolt 3 worth it. Mm. I can see on your face, John, you're thinking about it. Yeah, well, I was thinking about it uh, maybe getting like a newer laptop, maybe a 13-inch, because the reason why I have a 15-inch or the reason why those... They're so expensive. They're so much more expensive than the 13 inches is because I want to edit on it. Yeah. So, I mean, I spent, what, like 1500 extra dollars to be able to, like, have the processing power to be able to use Premiere and Audition without having a slow computer. And if I can just, you know, get a $700 eGPU yeah. and then have a more, a lighter 13 inch, a cheaper 13 inch, something that, like, I don't have to necessarily like worry so much about. I think uh, that would be awesome. It's a longer conversation, but you'd want an external monitor too, because the 13 inch, like if you're really using it for editing, that's way too small of a window. But there's a video port built into it, and so Apple's whole thing is like you'll leave your monitor connected yeah. to this, you'll sit down to edit and plug it into this, and you'll have a powerful system for editing. And then when you're out in the field and you're just using it for writing or on-set dailies work, you can work off your 13-inch. I actually, I think 13 might be the new 15. I'm really mm. excited to get my hands on a 13 and see, because they also did a pretty good spec bump on the 13-inch. And so if the 13-inch is starting to keep up, maybe we're in a world where like a 13 and an eGPU is the new 15. Cool. I feel like no like serious editor is out in the field with like a 15 inch MacBook like without a monitor just yeah. editing outside or like remotely. You'll occasionally see DITs on really small productions who are just like using a 15 right. inch for downloads and stuff. Mm -hmm. But even then, they're going to have a external like 23 inch video monitor getting that SDI mm -hmm. signal out. So the fact that their desktop is smaller is okay because they'll they'll be able to see the image bigger. Mm. But I think you could still do that with the 13-inch. In my dream scenario, you're rolling to set with like a 13-inch and eGPU and then like a really nice OLED, like this small HD OLED or something. And then you've got a great DIT kit that like is almost subway possible. I guess my last question would be how big is this thing? Like, uh, It's actually a little bit bigger than the old MacBook Pro Tower. Okay, It's not tiny. Right. It's like a substantial thing because those graphics cards get really hot. Mm -hmm. So they, they really worked on the thermal design to keep that sucker cool, which is really nice. 
but it's it's not a you could book bag it. You could have a thirteen in a book bag, a thirteen inch and this in a book bag really easily. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Totally. So what else you got for us, Charles? Well, last up, we just talked about Media Composer. A new release from Media Composer brings along the live timeline. So live timeline means you can be playing the timeline while doing other things, which is a feature that Premiere and Final Cut 10 users have had for a while. It's actually a really great feature when you have clients in the room and like you're watching playback and then someone says something or you notice something and you just want to add a mark really quickly, but you don't want to like stop and add a mark and restart. It's really nice to be able to do stuff like that while the timeline keeps going. This There's a whole lot of things you can do with this timeline. You could switch to another app and leave it playing. So if you want to go check your notes or something or if like if uh, the post supervisor has hip chatted you and you want to swing over to hip chat. Check or out Slack. What hip or chat Slack. is... <laughs> Very yeah. inside the, baseball. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, Slack. I guess AOL is everything. Instant messaged you. Yeah, exactly. You got a you got a hot aim message from college in 1994. <laughs> um, so it's kind of a really nice feature that I think a lot of people are going to appreciate. Um, Avid Media Composer users are notorious about not updating when they like the way something is working. Like because Media Composer is one of the few programs where uh, stuff can go back and forth from versions. Like with Premiere, oh. if I have 2018.7 and you have 2018.6, it doesn't go back and forth. Media Composer works really hard that like, you know, a version from four years ago and a version today, you can pass it back and forth. It's one of the many things people love about Media Composer. So Media Composer has to like work extra hard to get people to update. But this is one of those features where I'm like, this is going to get a lot of people to update. This is really useful. Um, they have also rolled out a very fascinating but less useful feature, which is 16K support. Uh, 16K is not like a thing anybody is doing yet, but I'm glad that Avid is getting ahead of Jeez. the future. Someone might be doing 16K somewhere. There's not a camera that shoots it that I know of. Um, maybe like a time-lapse sequence from a really high-resolution medium format camera. Um, but along with that, they're also doing 120p, which is actually a thing that is coming, and we're starting to see those projects. Billy Lynn, uh, or Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, the bizarre Ang Lee movie, shot 120p a couple years ago. And I believe they used a custom media composer build to edit that 120p. And so it doesn't surprise me that, of course, eventually that rolls out to the full media composer, because if they made it work for Ang Lee, and then they did some more testing, they can roll it out for the rest of us. I'm not the world's biggest 120p fan, but I hear if you're under 15 and you grew up on video games, you love it. Hmm. Um, I just think it looks really weird. I like walked out of Billy Lynn because I couldn't handle 120p. Um, but now anybody can take a crack at it. So that 2018.7 is out and is a good reason to update Media Composer users. Also, uh, always a good time to reiterate, Media Composer first is free. Media Composer came down to only 20 a month. We covered that in NAB 20. Uh, 18 a couple months ago and 20 month is a really good deal for uh, that and they finally got there I made a lot of fun of their pricing in the past which is why I feel like I have to repeatedly point out that I feel like they've sort of nailed it now to make up for my years of mocking their pricing it's very kind of you Charles I do what I can <laughs> Charles we're gonna ask you to stick around for an ask no film school question so James asked I'm pretty new to filmmaking and I want to buy a camera to start shooting some footage which is you know what one does with cameras so you're already on the right track James uh, I've read quite a bit <laughs> I've read quite a bit online he says about the subject but I still don't get it in a price range of 1200 to 1700 dollars are DSLR cameras still worth it isn't it better to get something such as he mentions a JVC JYHM360E or a Panasonic AGAC30. James, that is a great question and actually one we hear all the time, but I don't think we've ever answered here. So I figured I would go ahead and answer it. 
The question being more or less, why, if I'm spending $1,500, don't I just buy a traditional video camera? Why does everyone seem to buy a still camera that like accidentally shoots video on the side? And the reason, pure and simple, is image quality. Video cameras in that price point generally use a smaller chip, like a one-third of an inch chip, and that gives a bigger depth of field. And most filmmakers want a more cinematic feeling that comes with a smaller depth of field. And the best way to get a smaller depth of field is a bigger sensor. Also, a bigger sensor is generally going to be better in low light situations. Since filmmakers can't go really low with their shutter speeds, um, they need wide apertures on their lenses and they need bigger sensors in order to get those really nice images out of a camera. You mentioned DSLR in your post, but really at the moment, the hot market for filmmakers is mirrorless cameras. So like around your price point, there's the Panasonic GH5, the Fuji X-H1. For a little bit more, there's the Sony A7 line. Those are the hot cameras in your budget range with filmmakers. The one really in your price point would be the GH5 or even the older GH4, but you're going to get amazing results with any of those cameras that are probably going to look more cinematic to your eye than you might get out of an equivalent like camcorder-style video camera. And I know I mentioned that there's still cameras that accidentally shoot video, but in reality, at this point, all of those manufacturers know that these are cameras that are very popular filmmakers, and they're stuffing them full of features for filmmakers. Like the GH the GH5S, too. The GH5S is... Specifically designed for video, pretty at, much. Yeah, as is the X-H1 and the A7S2 was. With the A7 III, Sony's saying all of it's good. Like, the A7 III is just as good for stills and video. But if you're looking a little older, the A7S2 was their very clear, we're at you, filmmakers, camera. So they are conscious of this. They're giving us the features we want. There's still drawbacks, right? It's annoying not to have like real audio inputs, which you'd get in a normal video camera. And the audio controls can be finicky. So it tends to be better when you're working dual system or when you're using a zoom or something. Um, the lenses are still going to be still photo lenses. So they're not necessarily going to have all the features a cinema person might want, like being parfocal or repeatable focus. These cameras aren't mostly targeted at us. But filmmaking is really about sacrifice. Uh, we sacrifice our time. We sacrifice sometimes financially in order to make these things we want come to life. And so many filmmakers make the sacrifice of a more difficult to work with camera in order to get the quality of images they like. And then a little bit down the line, things get easier if you pick up something like a monitor recorder, like the Atomos Ninja, the Pix, things like that, give you the real audio inputs and the bigger monitors and stuff like that that filmmakers tend to love. And what's great about those is those tend to work camera to camera. So like, let's say you start with like a GH5S investment, and then a year later you get a Atomos, whatever the newest thing is then. In another year, if you switch to the GH6 or the GH7, the Atomos will still keep working Ooh. for you. So you like split your investment up over time. I don't remember. Do any of those cameras have their own XLR inputs? Full-size XLR, no. They'll mm -hmm. have audio inputs, but it'll be that really small, like, eighth-inch. Like the mini jack. Yeah, it'll be yeah. mini jack. To get an XLR input, you really are looking, like, for a filmmaker looking for one, they'd be looking at, like, the EVA one, really, to start getting the features they want with the full-size XLRs. There are, like, camcorders that'll have it, but they'll have a smaller sensor. So then I'd just add to your answer that, you know, for, for James, like, what Charles is really talking about is like kind of not a one-man band operation. Yeah. Probably with any of these cameras, if you're trying to do a higher quality film production, you will want an external, like an, a sound person. And for someone like me who does docs, who kind of relies on one-man band, 
it's it's like the big um, holdup for me for getting one of these mirrorless cameras, which in some ways seem ideal. They're light, they're mobile, they shoot beautiful footage, but they're really they become trickier when you want to do uh, in you know audio input into that camera. I mean, for me, and first off, I'm trying to encourage one mule team as the no film school genderless version of one man pants. Oh, so I'm thank just you. Throw that yes. out there. One oh mule team. Oh my gosh, team. I didn't even think about it. One Thanks mule for team. Out. Yeah, one mule team, like what an old west kind of kind of cowboy thing. Also, when you're I shooting mean, you could one say mule one team, person band. <laughs> that one, just does. One man band. Oh, one per- yeah, one person. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Get with the times. Honestly, when monitor re- recorders first came out, I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand why people do this. And then I finally bought one, and I was like. Oh, this really like literally I I'm doing I do one mule team shoots all the time now that are like an XH1 and an Atomos because then I get my full size inputs and then I like can have my wireless mic going into the, my full size input and it just makes life so much easier doing that and I you where can, like, is it physically is it is uh, it on it, your camera I mount it to the top of the camera mm-hmm. so I've got it like up above the camera I'm holding the camera I, I don't know why I'm motioning you guys on the podcast can't see it but you can picture in your head you mount it up above the camera you can clip like your wireless mic receivers to the back or whatever if you're really strong you can have like a handheld microphone in your left hand and in your right hand and it's got two XLR ins use a breakout cable but it's XLR ins and that has actually been working surprisingly well for me would I rather be up on an EVA one a lot of times sure but then EVA one is still a six thousand dollar investment and even the rental on it's two or three hundred bucks and like I did a shoot on Monday that came together Monday morning and I was going to get access to a location that I would never normally get Monday afternoon at three o'clock for an hour. And I was like, I want to do the shoot. I don't have time to put mm. together a rental. I don't have $6,000 sitting around to keep an EVA one on hand all the time. So like an Atomos and XH1, which I can afford to keep, I was like throwing them in the bag and going to the thing because I can afford mirrorless in a way that like a lot of us can't always afford the bigger cameras. Although I will rent an EVA one for shoots that have the budget and the time. Cool. Thanks, Charles. And thanks, James, for the question. Good luck. And now for some indie movies you can catch this week. Coming to Amazon Prime Instant on July 24th, you can check out How to Talk to Girls at Parties. We've talked about this on the show before. Uh, It's the latest film from provocative director John Cameron Mitchell, whose previous films include Hedwig and the Angry Itch. Right? No. No, it's it's Inch. Inch Inch. Inch Inch was what you had it last time, too. It's the size of his, uh, you know, his junk. Is it really? Is that what it's called? Cut off? Yeah, he's he, castrated. That's the whole yeah. thing. Okay, I have Angry no itch. idea what this movie is about. It could itch, too. It might itch, but it is but an itch. I bet it's itchy sometimes. It's itch. I always think, like, it can't be inch. Because oh. That's what? really funny that the two other films are Short Bus and Rabbit Hole. <laughs> like, they're all kind of <laughs> they're really, all like sexual. really sexual. They're all a little sexual. Yeah. I remember watching Short Bus in Vienna with a bunch of Viennese filmmakers when I was in college. They had, like, a party, and they had it, like, projected up on a wall, and we were playing drinking games and uh, watching huh? Short Bus. And eating Vienna sausage. My God, I remember watching Short Bus in my room with the door locked. <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> okay. Moving on. How to Talk to Girls at Parties, the Eric Lures story. That's the joke you used the last time we covered <laughs> this so movie. Funny. I tell you, give me a... Anyways, this movie debuted at Cannes last year and has since been picked up by A24 for distribution. It's about an alien touring the galaxy who breaks away from her group and meets two young inhabitants of the most dangerous place in the universe, the London suburb of Croydon. Elle Fanning plays the noted alien opposite Nicole Kidman, and a human love interest is played by Alex Sharp. Emily sat down with the DP of the film, Frankie DeMarco, in France last year to discuss his work on the film and his love of experimentation with different formats. 
And coming to HBO on July 19th is The Boy Downstairs. This is director Sophie Brooks's debut feature, which premiered at Tribeca in 2017. Impressively, she was less than five years out of film school at the time of the film's release. The Boy Downstairs is a confident film, in Emily's words, that easily maneuvers between comedy and drama to tell the bittersweet story of an ex-couple trying and failing to be friends. A young woman, played by Zosha Mamet, is forced to reflect on her first relationship when she inadvertently moves into her ex-boyfriend's apartment building. In an earlier episode of the No Film School podcast, Emily Booter herself talks to Sophie, who was her former classmate, and Sophie's brother, who was not her former classmate, but Sophie's producer, David Brooks, the Brooks siblings, about how to avoid the mistakes directors inevitably make on their first movie. Among these tactics is the ability to accept many rounds of constructive criticism during the writing process, letting your cast and crew pitch in with ideas for how to change a scene that isn't working, holding many test screenings with your target audience, and more. You can check out that podcast on the site. And in theaters this week, premiering at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival is But's Blind Spotting, the debut feature from music video director Carlos Lopez Estrada, written and starring friends Rafael Casal and Tony Award winner David Diggs, who you may know of Broadway's Hamilton fame, uh, the movie takes place in their native Oakland, California. As Colin, played by Diggs, is released from prison on an assault charge and subsequently placed on probation, he reconnects with his buddy Miles, who's played by Rafael, as the two resume work as local furniture movers. One evening, as Colin is waiting for a traffic light to turn green at an intersection, he witnesses a cop shoot down and murder an African-American man. The cop tells him to drive away. Does Colin, so close to being off probation, tell his friends of the crime? Does he report the murder to the police, who are those responsible for the injustice? Does he search for new ways to protect himself? Uh, Whether threatened to be pushed out or killed off, our lead characters fight for a city that now views them as outsiders in a very changing Oakland. Uh, In an era of highlighting police misconduct, the flashing blue and red lights atop a cop car provide unease for both the characters and us, the audience, and the film hones in on that ingrained trauma throughout. Uh, I interviewed Lopez and Diggs out of South by Southwest, actually, about representing Oakland on screen, why story was allowed to dictate the style, uh, because there's actually a lot of musical sequences that are kind of in there as well, involving like freestyling that come in very interesting ways, and how a history of working together provided the team with an opportunity to experiment creatively. It's a very, very, very good movie. Uh, I'd like to see it again soon. And this year's Sundance opening night picture is hitting theaters on Friday. It's Lauren Greenfield's Generation Wealth. This is a doc that pulls the curtain back on our nation's obsession with materialism and image-obsessed culture. It follows the increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots in a world that's been bogged down in both global boom and bust economy. The doc captures the corrupted American dream and the human costs of late-stage capitalism, narcissism, and greed. Sounds pretty heady. Uh, The filmmaker Greenfield is no stranger to the world of this story. In the film, she returns to the expensive private school in Santa Monica where she first picked up a camera to document her schoolmate's obsession with money. Since then, she's spent nearly 25 years as an insider-outsider to the world of the wealthy, taking nearly half a million photographs. In the film, she follows up with many of the people in those photographs to find out where our culture is heading. Our girl, Oakley Anderson Moore, interviewed Greenfield about creating the environmental portrait technique in the film, working with flawed subjects, and how to stay true to your art in the face of obsession and money. That interview will be on the site on Friday. I need to find out how to become an insider-outsider to the world of the wealthy. I just need to find out how to become an insider. That's my goal. Yeah, you're right. Is that Oakley's official role at No Film School, girl? 
She's our girl, like our, our girl? home girl. Uh, not not in like a demeaning kind She's of the way. girl downstairs. Girl downstairs. Yeah. Oh. No film school girl downstairs. She's Hopefully in your film, The Girl. I don't have it. It's mine. It's called The Guy. Oh. oh. I thought it was called The Goy. <laughs> no, that's uh, my that's film. Oh, sorry. I'm confused. <laughs> so uh, we've also got some grant deadlines for you. I'm pretty psyched about this first one, the Radical Film Fund with a deadline on August 17th. This is a new grant from our friend Dan Schoenbrunn and his producing partner, Vanessa McDonald. It was just announced earlier this week. They are the team responsible for The Eye Slicer, an experimental, what they call, mind-melting variety TV show designed to introduce audiences to the most daring American filmmaking happening right now. With The Eye Slicer's new radical film fund, Schoenbrunn and McDonald are paying it forward from a successful Kickstarter campaign for the show, to provide $500 to $2,000 microgrants for 10 to 15 original shorts. Now, these can be created in pretty much any style, as long as they're what the team calls personal, provocative, and proudly nonconformist. What's cool is that it's not just money for your films. The selected proposals are also considered commissions and are expected to be completed by April 2019 so they can be included in Season 2 of The Eye Slicer. Honoring both their philosophy and true independence for filmmakers, rights to the selected films will be non-exclusive. We've got a, a bunch on the site about this fund and also the Ice Slicer first season and other of Schoenbrenn's sort of innovative projects. So we'll link to some of that stuff in the podcast post. And with the deadline of July 31st is the Vision Sudest Fund. If you're a filmmaker based in Asia, Africa, Latin America or Eastern Europe, and you're looking for either production or post-production support, Vision Sudest has typically awarded 20,000 Swiss francs on narrative features and 10,000 Swiss francs for documentaries. It's a Swiss fund that was created with the support of the Swiss Agency for Development and Cooperation. In 2011, the Festival de Film Locarno has joined the fund as a new partner, and the fund aims at making their selected projects visible worldwide and guarantees their distribution in Switzerland. And on July 23rd, the Slamdance Screenplay Competition has its final deadline. The Slamdance Screenplay Competition is dedicated to discovering emerging writing talent. Since 1995, Slamdance has established a strong track record for identifying and supporting new screenwriters. And the competition welcomes screenplays in any genre, any topic from anywhere in the world. Every entrant will receive basic feedback, and there is also a submission option to receive in-depth coverage services at an affordable rate. So basic feedback would be like good. A plus. In John's case. And uh and and uh, in depth coverage would be like not good. Not good because <laughs> not be good because dot dot. You made it, loser. <gasps> no. Uh, we've also got some festival deadlines for you this week. If you are under twenty five years old, you might be excited about nifty the National Film Festival for Talented Youth. Um, this one takes place in Seattle, Washington from October 25th to 28th, 2018, and their deadline is July 20th. Last year, they screened 257 films from filmmakers 24 and younger, representing 27 states and 28 countries with over 12,000 in attendance. Movie Maker Magazine rated Nifty as one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee in 2014 and 2016. Plus, it has cash prizes. And to reiterate, you have to have been under 25 years uh, old at the time the film you submit was made. 
The Victoria Film Festival has a deadline on July 26th. For the Canadians out there, this festival takes place from February 2nd to the 11th, 2019 in Victoria, British Columbia. It's one of Movie Maker Magazine's top 50 festivals worth the entry fee for the last three years. And on July 27th, the Philadelphia Film Festival has their late deadline. This takes place from October 18th to the 28th in Philadelphia. And it features screenings of international, domestic, local films, respective tributes, forums and panels, and receptions. It was also one of the top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee. And now for Weekly Words of Wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. Hello. Hello. I am back to give you my weekly words of wisdom. Uh, or at least share some. This week, Emily spoke with director Xavier Legrand about his creepy debut feature, Custody, which is now currently in theaters. Legrand was previously nominated for an Academy Award for his short film, Just Before Losing Everything. That's the name of the title. He wasn't nominated <laughs> for an Oscar just before losing everything. But he uh, did lose. But he, he did lose <laughs> the Oscar. Sort of unfortunate. Oh, so yes, it's very, uh, we tell you, sometimes you don't know how you phrase these things. And when asked about what he learned by making his new film, which is his feature debut, Legrand reflected, I learned that directing a film is like being a conductor in a large harmonic ensemble. You have to listen to your whole team, but you also have to stay the course, especially when you are sure of what you want and some are skeptical. When there is reluctance, the goal is to not impose your will, but first to listen and take into consideration the doubts that some may have in order to make them better understand what you want. If someone is skeptical about what we are building together, then I am primarily responsible for this misunderstanding, since I have not been clear enough about the film we are creating. I like this very uh, defensiveless kind of take on it, uh, and just defenseless, rather, take on it and just being very open to the idea of collaboration, but also realizing that, yes, he is the final word, but it's almost director slash peer mediation and, and just making sure that making sure that everyone is heard, but knowing how to kind of group those voices and present one singular vision. I feel like that's a tough lesson to learn, but an important one. John's made similar points on the show about how you, you know, the buck sort of stops with you when it comes down to it. Yes, I have. <laughs> and I mean, for him to be this positive after just losing everything, uh, you know, it's it's great to hear. Well, maybe this was just before losing everything. <laughs> oh, I, I hope that movie's online. I'm excited for custody. It sounds really scary. I'm excited for you guys to see it and tell me how scary it is. So we've got some big, big shout outs this week that I'm very excited about. First up, I mentioned earlier that the Emmy nominations went live last week, and I'm thrilled to report that two of my pals were nominated for a show that I love. Joe DeShano, my colleague from MTV, and A.M. Peters, who actually cut the trailer for my last doc, were nominated for Outstanding Picture Editing for a Structured or Competition Reality Program for their work on Netflix's Queer Eye. Congrats, you two. I was surprised to see just how many dang Emmy categories there are. Was that not like a very Oakley-sounding thing? I feel like Oakley says dang. Anyway, they even specify between, for example, outstanding period costume and outstanding contemporary costume. <laughs> Best like hat and t-shirt. Best shorts. <laughs> Best shorts. Uh, but you probably won't be surprised to hear that several people from our community were nominated in documentary categories. We've got interviews and panels with several nominees up on the site, like the editors of Wild Wild Country and Deadliest Catch, and the directors of Spielberg and City of Ghosts, so we will also link to those in the podcast post. Finally, and this is super cool, someone who's a friend of the site and who's written a couple guest posts for us, director Alan Ungar, has made a huge splash in the video game world and the mainstream entertainment press this week. 
So backing up, if you're not a video gamer like I'm not, I'll mention that there's a wildly popular PlayStation action-adventure game called Uncharted that's been floated as a movie franchise for years. Alan is a fan, and apparently so is Firefly star Nathan Fillion. Tired of waiting for Hollywood to get its act together, the two teamed up to make a secret fan short that was just released this past Monday and as of recording has received over 2 million views. We love a good DIY success story and are really happy for you, Alan. And if you guys out there are into that sort of thing, check out the film on the YouTubes. It's called Uncharted Live Action Fan Film. I've played every Uncharted game <gasps> twice, I think. Wow, is it fun? Yes. No, you no, spent all that I've time just, doing that. <laughs> I just had to make sure that I was right with my opinion, so I played them all. Yeah. Well, have you twice. seen the film? No. Oh, no. you got to check it out. Ryan and I, uh, Ryan Ku and I are big Naughty Dog fans. We would like to bond. <laughs> it's really none of my business. Naughty Dog is, I mean, I'm sure most of you know this, but they're responsible for the video game uh, The Last of Us as well. Which is like Are a you sure hugely... most of them know this? Yeah, I didn't. A naughty dog. I didn't. Naughty, if you're, I mean, if you play, I assume that a lot of our audience of filmmakers also plays video games because video games are just getting more and more cinematic. And Naughty Dog makes like the most cinematic games out of any video game production company that I know. Uh, but there's, I mean, it's just veering more and more in that direction. So, anyways, uh, Uncharted is great. If you have a PlayStation, you should play Uncharted. If you haven't played The Last of Us and you like video games, what are you doing with your life? That's what I want to know. Well, I'm psyched for Alan regardless, although I probably won't uh, be playing any video games anytime soon. But um, there's already rumors that now people are uh, reaching out to him to potentially direct the feature. So how cool would that be? Wow. I know. That's crazy. I know. It's crazy. But Chris, stranger things have happened. Speaking well. of strange <laughs> things, tell us about next Monday's interview podcast, John. So next Monday, we got a friend of the website and all-around super talented dude, Jim Cummings, back on the program this Monday. I talked with him at South by Southwest when he was uh, winning his award, his grand jury prize award for the feature film Thunder Road. Uh, He also recently uh, was the beneficiary of the Sundance uh, Creative Creative Distribution Distribution Lab uh, thing that we talked about actually last week, I think, on the the show. so this is our first ever 100% remote interview with Cummings answering the questions all the way on the other side of the country in California in his own studio with his producer acting in my stead. So Cummings and his producing partner, Ben Weissner, have been uh, you know, in the game for a while now, and they wanted to start sharing their wealth of knowledge that they've learned with a shorts to feature lab that they've created. And it sounds like a really excellent opportunity for everyone who like listens to this show. It's right up our readership's alley. And he's going to be breaking down what people can expect if they want to apply and get in. Sounds cool. And thanks in advance, Jim, for doing that. Jim and, uh, and Ben. So while you're waiting for next Monday's thrilling episode, uh, please check out nofilmschool.com for new articles about the craft of filmmaking every day. And of course, we will have our podcast post there with links to everything that we talked about in this episode. And while you're out there on the internet, please subscribe to the No Film School podcast. And if you're on iTunes, give us a nice juicy rating. Um, You guys have written so many nice comments on there. And not only does it mean a lot to us, but it helps other filmmakers find the podcast. And that's, you know, kind of what we're all about. Uh, You can also stay in touch, of course. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. I'm at Eric Lures. 
I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, that's a new way of doing it. It's so hard when you were out last week to do it alone. You did so great. I was like Jim, jump, 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 jump. Yeah, no, I was very pleased, and so was Jim, John, Jim. We're all at No Film School, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.